Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Acts, and here we will be in Acts chapter 14, discussing Paul and Barnabas at Iconium, Lystra, Paul's stoning at Lystra, and their return to Antioch in Syria on their missionary journey. If you have not yet signed up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race, head to the link in the show notes, and we will send you Peter Lightheart's notes on the book of Isaiah. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John discussing Acts 14. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Brian Motes. We are in the middle of a series of podcasts on the book of Acts, and we have uh, come to, at least in terms of chapters, the halfway point in the book. We're going to be discussing Acts chapter 14 today, which is the second half of an account of Paul's first missionary journey that he takes with Barnabas. Uh, In this chapter, Paul and Barnabas visit Iconium and then move on to Lystra. There are other locations mentioned, but those are the two places that uh, have uh, significant events that are recorded here. Uh, but this is a continuation of what happened in chapter 13. We, we noticed in the last podcast that chapter 13 begins with a reference to Paul and Barnabas being set, set apart for the work of carrying the gospel to these new locations. And then chapter 14 ends with an inclusio that refers to the work that has now been finished as they come back to Antioch and report on what the Lord has done. Now, we'll find that there are common patterns that are running through this this chapter, uh, patterns that were what we also saw in the uh, account of the church in Jerusalem. And I wanted to set things up by referring to Revelation 6, which may not seem like a relevant text, but um, in my commentary on Revelation, I followed Jim Jordan's treatment of the Horsemen of the Apocalypse followed it for the most part. I think uh, chapter six follows on the vision of the ascension of Jesus in chapter five. And the opening of the book is Jesus, the ascended Jesus, unleashing uh, the power of the spirit, I think, into the world. And that spirit is shown in these visions of the four horsemen. I think what we have here is a symbolic description of the series of events that happens repeatedly in the book of Acts and still happens wherever the gospel is taken. Uh, the white horse is a, a conquering horse that's going out conquering and to conquer a horse that uh, represents warfare and battle, I think represents the spirit riding the church out into spiritual warfare, fighting with the power of the gospel. That inevitably leads to conflict. The second horse is a red horse that's a horse of war. And whenever the gospel is preached, there is a division made. We'll see that in Acts 14. Sometimes the conflict actually turns bloody, as we'll see in chapter 14 as well. The third horse is the black horse, which represents famine, but it's a targeted famine. It's a famine that uh, that hits uh, the wheat and the barley, but doesn't hit the wine and the oil. And what we have here is a, a decapitalization, as it were, of one sector of the economy and a preservation of another sector. And I think uh, that symbolizes the, the shift that happens when the gospel is preached. It creates division, and then you have Gentiles and Jews that are both taken out of the storehouse of one world and brought into the storehouse of the kingdom. 
And then uh, the final, uh, the final horse is the horseman of death, a green horse that represents um, various forms of death, uh, sword, famine, and pestilence that brings death, uh, which is uh, in some kind of uh, judgment that takes place on those who don't receive the gospel. So I think that sequence, when we understand the sequence of the horseman that way, that's what's happening in each of these locations. Uh, the pro- gospel is preached, division happens, there's a depletion of the resources of those who oppose the gospel and an increase in the resources of those who are proclaiming the gospel. And then those who resist the gospel are left vulnerable to the, to the judgment of God that's looming over the whole book of Acts. Something else which seems to be going on in addition to this idea of a, um, a dividing of people by means of the gospel is a, a swapping places of Jews and Greeks in terms of the role and reception of the gospel. So in verse 2, we've got the phrase here that the um, unbelieving Jews stirred up, um, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And this um, verb that's used here to, to poison or, or to do harm, it's, um, it's used in, I think it's unique to Acts, in fact, but it, it's used um, of Pharaoh's uh, behaviour towards the Israelites in Stephen's speech, and then it's used in terms of Herod's behaviour towards the apostles in Acts chapter 12. And um, it seems here that, a, Gentiles are, are coming in and taking the place of righteous Israel, I guess, and at the same time there are unbelieving Jews who are adopting more of a Gentile religion um, in, in relation to the gospel. Yeah, the division is not a neat division that you might expect. Um, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and the, bo- the book of Acts is going to climax with Paul turning away from the Jews to preach to the Gentiles in Rome. But this is one of the places where that division gets complicated, not only in Iconium, but also in Lystra, where you have a division, uh, not only within the Jewish community, but you have a division of Gentiles. And you again have the Jews, uh, as is often the case in Acts, who are supposed to be a source of light and wisdom and um, an influence for good among the Gentiles in the Roman world, actually uh, behaving in precisely the opposite way stirring up uh, the Gentiles, poisoning their minds, uh, and uh, actually encouraging violence and division in the city uh, rather than unity. We've already mentioned the way that there are parallels with the earlier part of the Book of Acts and the experience of the church in Jerusalem. I think one of the good examples of that is the healing of the lame man, the description of this man who's crippled from birth a man who um, Paul looks intently at him in the same way as um, Peter looks intently at the lame man in chapter 3. It seems that Acts or Luke in Acts wants us to draw some parallel between the mission that Paul is engaging in here with, um, with the Gentiles and the earlier mission that took place in Jerusalem. They're playing out a new stage, as it were, but covering the same ground like an ascending staircase or spiral staircase. And that movement out, I think, is part of this wider shift in the narrative from a Jerusalem-centered story to a story that has now gone on to the sea of the Gentiles. Yeah, that that seems right, Alistair. Um, It's also seems to be part of this uh, larger sequence of parallels between the actions of Peter and Paul so that uh, Paul is something of a new Peter after 
Paul, after Peter gives his sermon in Acts 2, then you have the healing of the lame man, and then this violent reaction uh, to Paul by the uh, Jerusalem council. And then here you have um, Paul giving this uh, sermon to in Pisidian Antioch in 13, and then it's followed by this healing of a lame man, and then, the, of course, the stoning of Paul at Lystra. So, so Paul is a new Peter, uh, and a new Peter who is going to the Gentiles. Right, and both of them, of course, are based on the ministry of Jesus. Um, Paul is in Iconium uh, preaching, and uh, many believe, but and he performs signs and wonders and then is persecuted. That's all uh, following the sequence of Jesus. So it's interesting you have these uh, these have you have these layers of replication, these typological cycles. It's not just a matter of things uh, fulfilled in Jesus, or simply a matter of Je- things fulfilled in Jesus and then also fulfilled in the church as the body of Christ. But you have these uh, epicycles, as it were, that um, in each individual is kind of being uh, is is another is another variation on the theme of Jesus, uh, and they're all also variations on the theme of the preceding. Leader, so as as Jeff was saying, uh, Paul is a new Peter, as Peter is a new Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all in the law and the prophets. You have these uh, these accumulating cycles that uh, that replicate themselves at each stage. Peter, I think you made the point in an earlier podcast that in some of these early chapters, what we often have when we have the conversion of Gentiles is not so much the conversion of a overtly idolatrous group of Gentiles, but God-fearers like uh, Cornelius would fit into that category. Lydia, I guess, is, is uh, down at the river praying, and I would guess is similar. This strikes me as a similar example. So in Iconium, in, in verse 1, um, it's in the synagogue where they're speaking, and a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. So it strikes me at the start of this chapter, at least, that these Greeks would be God-fearers, I would have thought. Yes, that's what that's what it seems like to me uh, in verse one. But it seems to it it expands uh, seems to expand by the time you get to verse four. The multitude of the city is divided, which which appears to be a citywide division. And I, I guess the the rulers in verse five are probably the rulers of the Jews instead of the rulers of the city. But there's a uh, yeah it it starts as a division. Uh, and starts as it starts within the context of the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, but it it, be- it begins to expand wider than that. It seems. Yeah, you have a similar thing in Pisidian Antioch in the preceding chapter, where he originally is addressing the Jews. Then it seems that there are some Gentiles responding, and then the whole city comes. Hmm. Whereas I think in in Lystra, it's the first time that we really see the gospel message recorded as it is addressed to. Um, Gentiles who have no um, exposure to Judaism but are pure pagans. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And verse four, the division of the city. I'm not sure if that's necessarily division over the uh, reception of the gospel, but over what to do with um, uh, what, what to do with Paul. Is it? I wonder if it's sort of a more uh, social issue than directly the gospel so uh, he's a disruptive force in the city and they need to decide um how to how to deal with this disruption is that the kind of thing you're thinking of yeah Mm -hmm. i think so yeah but wouldn't you also say that anytime the gospel um gets some traction 
that necessarily involves social dynamics. Um, of course, you see this with Jesus when he's going on proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. Uh, it's causing all sorts of social uh, unrest. Um, and here also, uh, there is this division. This connection with Jesus that uh, Peter made earlier, Jesus, Peter, Paul, also here in the sense that, you know, when when Jesus was um, <clears throat> felt threatened uh, and uh the crowds or the the leaders, the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, whatever, were uh, trying to destroy him. He often withdrew. He often fled. And here mm-hmm. you see the apostles fleeing to Lystra and Derby to get away from this. So there's some wisdom here, I think. And if this, and surely it is, these stories are exemplary also for the church. There are times when uh, it's appropriate just to flee, um, just to to get out of town, so to speak. Uh, that's the wisest thing to do at this point. Um, but of course, in Lystra, Paul is actually going to be stoned. Uh, maybe he just wasn't able to avoid it at that point at all. But again, like Jesus, Paul stoned rises up um, outside the city uh, on the next day um, and continues on with his mission. Mm-hmm. I want to go back, Jeff, to your comment about the um, the social dimensions of this. Uh, James and Jeff both. Um, I, yeah, I think there's a, there may be a differences of emphasis, but I I think Jeff's point was that um, there are social dimensions, political dimensions, even just to the there, certainly to the proclamation of the gospel and to the reception of the gospel. So, you, for example, you have the gospel preached in a synagogue that includes both. Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, some of them believe and some of them don't. And that not only changes the beliefs of each of them, it changed it, you know, you might divide families. You might divide families who have a prominent place in the city. You, you're, you're calling people to take a stand uh, sometimes in opposition to some of the customs and certainly the religious practices of the city. So even even the uh, the sheer uh, the, just the simple proclamation of the gospel has it enters into and disrupts the uh, social and political circumstances of the city, right? And you see a similar thing today. I mean, you could see the gospel proclaimed, and some could accept, some could reject. But then, if, for instance, someone is told, you know, you're not to say this, you would then find people lining up on different sides of that, and some people who perhaps reject the gospel uh, in terms of its content would nevertheless defend people's right yeah. to proclaim it in, in a certain way. And and so, yeah, these divisions that we see today are, are nothing new. Yeah. It'll be the, the few classical liberals that are left would uh, defend to their death the right for us to speak. <laughs> well, it, it wouldn't hurt to notice here that you have this pagan dynamic going on here, this Girardian scapegoating because, uh, Jews and Gentiles aren't usually united, but they are here in their opposition to Paul and to the apostles, and they want to make they want to make them scapegoats, basically. Well, Paul and the apostles uh, beat feet out of town in order that that won't happen. So apparently, the division is still prevalent here in this um, in this town, even though, and the gospel has that. In fact, as you mentioned, Peter, with the the horsemen of Revelation 6, the gospel is going to bring division, ultimately union, 
but at first mm. division and it's going to break down the old Gentile p- social patterns here um, that are so ingrained in these communities. Alistair has already called attention to uh, the event in Lystra where uh, Paul preaches for the first time to pagans. These, I'm assuming these aren't uh, Gentile God-fearers who suddenly slip into Zeus worship. I'm assuming that they're just um, they're, they're pagan residents of Lystra who see this wonder and, and respond. Any thoughts on that, that whole scene where uh, Barnabas and Paul are, are described as gods? I, I, a number of commentators have connected to the story of Balchus and Philemon, where um, is it Zeus that visits this elderly couple and they show him hospitality and so they're, they're blessed by Zeus. But I wonder if you have, if any of you had any other. That's a, I don't know. Is that is that kind of a comical scene? Is it? Um, what? How are we supposed to? How are we supposed to react to that? It might be worth just noting that is the third time in a few chapters that some people have been worshipped as gods. Um, you had um, Cornelius bowing to Peter, and then um, the people worshipping Herod, and now yeah. this is the yeah. third occasion. I mean, is is this here just to show us how benighted the people of Lystra were that they're that they're genuine pagans? Is it somehow uh, are they enacting a kind of parody of the reception of the gospel, where they want to worship the messengers? Well, it, it's surely that. Um, but the question is, is it more than that? I wondered in reading and thinking through this whether also. Um, there is something, I don't know, I don't know the word for it, but to identify Paul and Barnabas with these gods come down in the flesh. wonder if there's uh, some suggestion here that, uh, yeah, these, these gods, these anthropomorphic gods, Zeus and, and Hermes, uh, who, have, who have basically run this city and run, of course, the pagan world, whether Greek or Roman, for many centuries, um, are now going to re- be replaced by new rulers, human rulers, who uh, in in some sense are small g gods, uh, the the leaders of the church, the church, um, because in the past God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, and that included worshiping these uh, uh, deified human beings. But now you've got. Uh, other other human beings coming in um, and proclaiming uh, the true God and Jesus Christ. I'm not sure whether that works or not, um, but it um, seems like that's what actually happens in the ancient world is the gods give way to uh, new rulers, and that's the church and the human rulers in the church. Misapprehension seems to be a common theme in Acts in response to the gospel, whether it is the reaction on the day of Pentecost when they hear the tongues and they think that they're drunk or whether it's something like Simon Magus thinking that he can buy the power of the Holy Spirit um, or whether in this occasion where they think that these are gods coming down in human form it's, it seems that the failure to grasp what's truly going on is a common theme even for the disciples, the way that they fail to appreciate that Peter has indeed been released from prison by the angel, um, and the way that 
the response to that is a clarification of the true force of the gospel. There is a challenge to idolatry, which is has just immediately been um, manifested by the way that they have behaved. The other thing is there's a sort of I- irony in saying that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Um, there is a dimension of that which is true, that Christ has come as the one who is taken the form of a servant and he's come to us in the likeness of human flesh. And yet it's so different from the message of the idolaters. Mm -hmm. Mm. I guess at the very least, you've just got different pictures of the reception of the gospel. On the one hand, initially you've got really acceptance by some, but then rejection by others. Here you've got like a, a wrong acceptance, I guess, and it's only finally in the third incident that it talks about the gospel, verse 21 onwards, they, they make many, many disciples and they were able to go on and sort of strengthen the, the souls of the disciples. And I guess you, you've got, you could perhaps align some of these things with the, there is initially the seed that kind of falls uh, on the path and, and the birds come and devour it up. It, it's kind of taken away people are stirred up against paul here i wonder if you've got something like it springing up quickly on rocky ground it, it gets this great reception but it doesn't seem to be such a great reception and, and it ends it says in verse 18 they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices it's not quite clear what state that ends up in but it's it's finally that the seed sort of goes and finds good soil and then there is the planting of, of disciples Mm. As, as Alistair mentioned, this is the first time we see Paul preaching to an, a pagan audience. We see a, a similar thing in a few chapters in Athens. And uh, as commentators point out, this is a different, different kind of sermon, different kind of presentation than he's given to uh, to the. Uh, to the Jewish audiences that he's had, or the the other apostles have given to the Jewish audiences, those are primarily reviews of Israel's history, uh, and particularly in the early chapters, they were accusatory speeches. They would they would end with an accusation against the Jews who had betrayed Jesus and put him on the cross. Um, but um, this uh, I mean, this may relate to Alistair's point about the the parallel between uh, their belief about the gods coming down in human form and the incarnation that Paul's proclaiming, the, the gospel that Paul's proclaiming. Uh, Paul seems to find uh, some sort of commonality with them. He doesn't start out, uh, I mean, he's rebuking them for for uh, offering sacrifice uh, to mere men. But then uh, he also talks in terms of their uh, they they have uh, even though they're outside of Israel, they too have received witness to God's goodness. Uh, they have uh, some knowledge of God, and Paul finds a certain a certain kind of common ground in uh, in proclaiming even to these Gentiles. Yeah, related to that is uh, verse fifteen. We bring you good news, and you would think that if we're being reductionistic about it, that the good news is Jesus is Lord or the story of Jesus. But actually the good news here is the creator God, the living God 
who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Um, it's probably instructive for us to remember this is that uh, it's good news. <laughs> the good news can include, can be comprehensive of, you know, basically all the, uh, all the, all, everything we confess in the Nicene Creed, say, um, and that if people haven't heard uh, that God is the creator, that that's, that can be good news to people, especially these people and people in our day and age too. One feature of the crowd's treatment of Paul and Barnabas that's always um, been somewhat amusing to me, but at the same time, it reveals something about the character of idolatry, is it's almost as if they're captured by the crowd. They don't really have the capacity to speak um, properly because the crowd has determined who they are, what to do with them. And it seems like a revelation of something about the character of idolatry, that at uh, the very heart of idolatry is a sort of process of ventriloquism where human beings are putting words into the mouth of God, they're defining and projecting onto God rather than actually hearing the word of God. And the challenge to actually make themselves heard where you have this mob of idolaters that want to fit them into their categories and into their um, pantheon is is a challenge. Um, But it's a challenge precisely because of the character of idolatry. Yeah, it seems like one of the one of the one aspect of the good news that Paul proclaims here is the end to the period of uh, permission. Uh, verse sixteen: In generations past, God permitted nations to go their own ways. Uh, he gave a witness, but now uh, he's um, implying, as he as he says explicitly in other places, that that time of permission has is coming to an end. That doesn't seem like doesn't seem like good news. But it is because God is no longer going to tolerate and, and leave their idolatry go. He's now sent Paul and Barnabas to them uh, to call them to repentance and call them to the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it. So uh, there's a the very promise of restraint on idolatry is part of the good news that God is God isn't going to let that happen anymore. I think that sometimes we can uh, overplay the the difference between how Paul addresses the Gentiles and how Paul addresses the Jews. And so there is mention here of of creation and what God has done and the fruitful seasons and giving rain from heaven and so forth. And um, there's a similar thing. Paul talks uh, to the same way when, uh, in the same way when he's accused in Athens and he starts talking about the God of creation. And, and that's true, but I don't think it's the case as he sometimes said that, when he speaks to the Gentiles, Paul begins from the God of creation and kind of builds up from there. Um, rather, he begins preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Um, that's very explicit in, in Athens. And then when he's accused, he starts to uh, defend himself by uh, appealing to what they know of God there already. And um, uh, I, I, I think that probably is, is something to bear in mind that first and foremost it is the resurrection which is uh, proclaimed always by the apostles Mm -hmm. jeff mentioned the gerardian dynamics earlier and one of the features of gerard is uh, his recognition that there's a sort of ambivalence to the Mm -hmm. scapegoat character where the scapegoat can be made a king or the scapegoat can be thrust outside and killed um that figure that is the lightning rod of all the desires and tensions of the people can 
fit into this either category. And there's something about the way in which the crowd can go from one moment treating them as um, divine beings to the next moment trying to stone them that expresses something of of that um, that fundamental dynamic, which is one um, that could be foundational for pagan society and and also for any sinful society that has not received the light of the gospel. And here I think Luke is describing that dynamic in a way that brings it to light what's taking place. Yeah, it's, a, it's something of an inversion of the typical Girardian pattern because typically Girard talks about the scapegoat being expelled or put to death and then because his expulsion saves the city from some catastrophe, the the scapegoat is elevated. There's the apotheosis of the scapegoat. But this is Luke got his Gerard backwards, it seems, because you have the apotheosis first and then and then the crowd turns against them. Luke needed to read his Gerard a little more carefully, I guess. But I, I wonder if there's something uh, if if we take this from a Girardian perspective, is there something some twist on Gerard that this is highlighting that they're that the uh, the movement can actually go in reverse. Well, or that um, the Girardian social dynamic, when it comes to its peak here, um, in well, in the whole, all the gospel stories as well, in, in in Israel with Jesus' death, and here with the death uh, of uh, Jesus' body, Jesus' uh, apostles, that it's it's coming apart this is the way it's going to unravel um because now the now the uh, the victim um becomes well i don't know how to say this um but of course the, the victim is going to be vindicated just like mm-hmm. jesus was it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating to see in verse 19 that it's the jews that come and uh and spur on this uh this scapegoating. Uh, it's, it's important to remember this is not just a Gentile phenomenon, that, it, that in the gospel stories, it's the, um, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, and the Romans, Pilate, who come together and become friends mm-hmm. in their uh, killing and scapegoating of Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus rises again, and, and um, it turns out to be not exactly what they wanted. And that's going on here, too, with uh, the rising up of Paul. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and and it reads slightly awkwardly, doesn't it, in verse 19, because it's not entirely clear what the, the Jews' problem is with what's been done. I mean, Paul has been there and, and spoken to the uh, some polytheists, and they've started worshipping Paul, and, and Paul said, no, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't do that, and tried to point them towards God. And, they, and then the Jews came and, come and, and, and don't like what's going on. It, <laughs> it reads strangely to me. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good point. They just see an opportunity to destroy Paul. Yeah, right. That's all. Right, right. There's also a sort of counter mission taking place here. They're following Paul in his tracks of his missionary journey, going through Antioch, Iconium, and now coming to Lystra, and at each stage engaging in this opposing missionary yeah. journey. But and and in doing that, though, they're they're helping Paul to achieve his aims. We've seen this repeatedly in Acts that. No obstacle is is uh, lasts. Every obstacle is turned into some opportunity for the gospel. And what happens when the Jews turn the city against Paul is that they take him out and stone him, which means that he's following in the footsteps of Stephen, who followed in the footsteps of Jesus. And so Paul, not just in his preaching, but in his experience, actually enacts the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Uh, he enacts what he says in verse 22, that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and he can boast later in Galatians that he bears on his body the brand marks of Jesus Christ. He's the stigmata of his uh, missionary work. So the Jews are actually facilitating that and making him a kind of living icon of the gospel. So their their counter-mission, their counter-evangelism uh, actually ends up serving the purposes of the actual uh, mission of the church. Right, and that involves more swapping of places, I guess. So Paul is uh, behaving and being treated in a Stephen-like way, and the Jews are really fulfilling the role of the old Paul, which he has now uh, left behind when he's been converted. Mm. So what do you all think is happening in verse 20? says, when the disciples gathered about him, so Paul's been dragged out of the city and they thought he was dead. The disciples gathered about him and he rose up and entered the city on the next day. I mean, are we supposed to think that these uh, converts, these disciples um, prayed, maybe laid hands on Paul uh, and he rose up? Or are they gathering around him to protect him from uh, further injury, further harm. It's kind of hard to tell what's going on here. Um, mm-hmm. It does seem strange that after having been stoned, um, the next day he can be mm-hmm. traveling to a new city. Um, and the reference to him rising up maybe suggests there is some resurrection type theme taking place here. And maybe we're supposed to think that there is some healing mm-hmm. um, of his wounds and injuries. Right. So even if he did, even if he didn't actually die and rise again, uh, as Alistair, you're right that there's a kind of resurrection theme in the sense that he's he's fully revived by the next day and able to move on. Um, so uh, it, it just the 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 picture there, um, it just the the, the visuals of uh, uh, what may be a, a, a corpse surrounded by a group of disciples uh, standing guard or you know, some kind of uh, vigil, maybe praying, praying for him. But that strikes me some kind of uh, uh, visual analogy, though, at least with the, uh, with the resurrection of Jesus, where he's put into the grave and then uh, guards are stationed around him. Uh, We've seen this kind of scene enacted elsewhere in Acts, where you have uh, Peter in prison, for example, and surrounded by guards. It seems to have at least a visual similarity. There seems to be a sort of reversal um, that goes on um, uh, from verse 20 onward. So initially they have been at Iconium, um, then they go to Lystra, uh, then Paul is uh, stoned and thrown out of the city and left for dead. But then in verse 20 onwards, um, he is raised up, um, then he enters back into the city, um, and then he goes elsewhere and it says in verse 21 he returned to Lystra and then to Iconium and finally to, to Antioch so it, 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 he sort of goes back on exactly the same uh, return journey to Antioch and that seems at the very least just to play out a, a sort of um, a, a reversing of, of what has gone on beforehand yeah and can we be um, surprised and encouraged that in the end here when Paul gets back to Antioch and reports everything um, <laughs> that it says that uh, let's see where they had been committed is verse twenty six commended I'm sorry commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled 
So they have, in some sense, fulfilled the commission that was given to them in Antioch back in the beginning of chapter 13. And then they arrived and gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Uh, that's a pretty positive spin on what happened. <laughs> um, and with all, with all the death and the, the division and the hatred and the pursuit by the unbelieving Jews, in the end, Paul goes back and, and is encouraged and encourages the church with what God has done through them, even though through many tribulations, the kingdom of God is still coming. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.